Hello and welcome to Veritalk, podcasting the life of the mind from the Harvard Graduate School of Arts and Sciences. I'm Nick Nardini, and I'm a graduate student in English. And I'm Sasha Lee, a graduate student in Regional Studies through East Asia. And we'll be your hosts for today's installment of Veritalk. Today we're discussing the 50th anniversary of the book that gave the world the concept of the paradigm shift. And in the fluff portion of our show, we'll be decking the sonic halls with a conversation about Christmas carols. So, as this year celebrates the 50th anniversary of the publication of Thomas Kuhn's *The Structure of the Scientific Revolution*, we have invited Florence Stephen Moore, a PhD student in the History of Science department, to talk about how this important work came to be written and some of its most influential ideas. So, while you may not be familiar with this work, surely you have heard the term paradigm shift, which has been used to describe everything from the development of quantum mechanics to the recent music video *Gundam Style*. We'll be discussing with Florence just what qualifies. As a paradigm shift, and how this idea has changed the study of the history of science. Florin, welcome to Vera Talk. Thank you for having me on. So we've heard that there's actually a Harvard angle to the history of this book. If you can start us off with telling us a bit about that. It's actually a very interesting story because it, it's a story of、uh, intellectual courage. Kuhn was a student at Harvard. He continued、um, at Harvard by doing a PhD in physics. Here and、uh, then he he realized that he wasn't so much interested in physics as he was in philosophy, and he just decided to to shift fields. He didn't know much about philosophy at that time, but you know he spent、uh, after his PhD several years, you know three years as a as a junior fellow in the of the Harvard Society of Fellows. And this was around what year?、Uh, so this was I would say about you know in the fifties or so. You know, in the in the book, in the in the structure of scientific revolutions, he has a moment where he kind of describes how he came came up with this idea of paradigm shift. You know, and he basically says that he was in his room. He was a resident tutor in Kirkland House,、mm-hmm. and、uh, he was in his room, and he just you know abstractly gazed、uh, through the window, and、uh, bam, you know, it hit him that. Aristotle's physics makes sense. This is kind of from my research in the Harvard archives about Kuhn, you know, because I was kind of interested in the in the history of our department because it's you know it's a history that you know it ties into the kind of the the Harvard reaction to the、uh, to the Second World War. You know, it's a story about the beginning of the Cold War.、Uh, you know, so you know history of science it has this all these connections to all these interesting things that were going on in the world of culture. You know, in that time. A, so how is it a Cold War story? The president of Harvard,、uh, Brian Conant, you know, he was involved in the war effort.、Uh, he was、um, stationed in England during the war, and he is the man that basically backed up history of science. And、uh, he, you know, he helped found the department of history of science at Harvard.、Mm-hmm. And his views were basically shaped by George Sarton, who was a Belgian emigre between the wars. Uh, who was marginalized、uh, at Harvard、uh, because he, you know, back in that time between the wars, you know, being a Belgian was a very weird thing, you know,、mm-hmm. around here.、Uh, Harvard wasn't that diverse、uh, back then,、sure. and but he shaped the views of this of this man of、uh, Brian Conant, and Conant started to believe that you know we have to move towards a kind of a unification of the humanities and sciences. Because he was, you know, Sartre believed in a in a thing called new the new humanism.、Mm-hmm. Uh, so this is kind of a concept which is it goes back to European socialism,、mm-hmm. uh, to Auguste Comte, and、uh, you know he Sartre and Conant, you know, who took up his views, you know, they believed in a kind of a、um, that we have to bridge the gap. 
you know, between the sciences and uh, the humanities. To arrive at some complete... To, to, uh, to arrive at the complete, you know, at the unity of science. And this is the milieu in which Thomas Kuhn is And this is this and is exactly the milieu in which Thomas Kuhn was studying, you know, these were the ideas that were circulating, exactly. Okay. And, but Thomas Kuhn, you know, what he did, he did something that goes completely against this view of the unity of science. So ironically, his book was published in a, in a series uh, for the unity of science, uh, where you know major philosophers, major positivist philosophers were publishing. You know, mm -hmm. but his book, you know, if you look at his argument, you know, he argues exactly the opposite that the unity of science is not possible. That science makes leaps. So let's get there. So what yeah. exactly is the fundamental argument of this of the structure of scientific revolutions? It's a, that's a very difficult question because Kuhn has many arguments, but one of the most important ones is that science does not progress according to a linear development. Mm. So there is no growth of science in the future which is uh, linear and cumulative. But there is, uh, from time to time, there are what he calls uh, paradigm shifts. Uh, these things are very rare. They don't occur every day, so, you know, Gagnon style wouldn't qualify <laughs> exactly as a paradigm shift, you know. Oops, sorry, sorry. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, we can still use, uh, the word is used inflationarily yeah. uh, these days, and so we definitely can use it in this way, you know. But this doesn't reflect Kuhn's ideas, uh, because, um, you know, Kuhn was saying that uh, at, at some points, uh, in science, there are, uh, you know, these this shifts of view. The, the consequences of the shifts are so deep that before, the world before and after the shift is completely different, looks very different. And, you know, after you make the leap, after you transition into the new world, you don't even recognize the old world. Mm. What appears as a rabbit you know, before the shift, you know, is seen as a duck after that. You know? So, yeah, this is kind of a, he uses the, this analogy of kind of the shadow game, you know, where you right. kind of, you, you know, you project, uh, you know, the, your shadow on the wall, you know, yeah, right. and basically the duck and the rabbit are kind of represented in uh, using the kind of same hand gestures. And so speaking, and so, speaking so. of paradigms, the yeah. paradigmatic example of a paradigm shift is the Copernican revolution, right? Yes, exactly. So yeah. by the time of Copernicus, uh, following Ptolemy, we had developed very complex ways of tracking the progress of the celestial bodies, right? And mm -hmm. which were incredibly accurate. They weren't, mm -hmm. they weren't wrong. They were very good at predicting mm -hmm. where Mars would be on a certain mm -hmm. day. After the Copernican revolution, everything looks different, right? Mm -hmm. To the point where the, previous, the Ptolemaic view of the universe just looks wrong. Mm -hmm. That's correct, right? Yeah, that's completely correct. That's his, um, you know, that's the subject, uh, the subject matter of his first book, actually, mm -hmm. which he published while at Harvard, The Copernican Revolution. Mm -hmm. Uh, this is exactly, you know, one of the, you know, poster examples of, uh, of, of paradigm shift. Uh, but, you know, historians of science, you know, after Kuhn has, have produced more detailed histories and, you know, this hasn't occurred in such a, you know, abrupt way. So I think the metaphor, the central metaphor, you know, so first of all, one has to say that Kuhn's contribution to, to, to you know, the way we understand science, one of his core contributions is that, we should uh, look at developments in terms of metaphor. That metaphor is important as a cognitive tool to, uh, to grasp complex realities, you know. And his idea of paradigm shift is also uh, sort of a metaphor. He uses many, many, many metaphors and many examples. One, one of it is like a religious conversion. And, you know, historians of science these days, you know, they are saying that transitioning from one, uh, one type of science or from one paradigm to another is more like, it occurs something more like an avalanche. 
You know, this is kind of the view of Peter Gallison, you know, and uh, Rainy Dustin in in Objectivity, mm-hmm. which is kind of the, the the newest one of the latest you know books in in the in the history of science. And you know, if and you know, historians of science have produced more detailed uh, accounts of this transition from the Ptolemaic worldview to the Copernican one. Mm-hmm. And there are many complicated issues. You know, it's not just about you know the place of the sun in the solar system. It's also a matter of you know, um, kind of if you make a distinction between the lunar and the sublunar world, which is like a separate thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, how you think of uh, if the mathematization of space. Mm-hmm. You know, all these issues. So they, they didn't exactly occur, you know, in one blow, you know. Right. So, and there, there were many, 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 you know, smaller developments inside that, that sure. you know, that, that change. You know? sure. Yeah. And that's something that, that I find confusing that in the example you gave um, of the rabbit and the duck, there, yeah. is a, there isn't as strong of a sense that the displacement of the prior paradigm means what was in place before is wrong. But it's just yes. different. But then in, when we talk about scientific examples, I struggle with this because whatever came later, we associate with being more accurate yeah. and a more um, empirically correct way of thinking about the world. Yeah. Well, okay. So was Kuhn an anti-positivist? Was it, would it be accurate to say that he didn't believe that there was such thing as objective fact? Is, is yeah. everything a metaphor? Does the entire structure of knowledge become a metaphor? Well, I mean, there are, this is a very complicated question. I mean, definitely Kuhn was directed against positivism. Okay. And one of the things that really bothers him is this picture of you know, progress you know, uh, we have. Uh, he basically wants to complicate our view, you know. But as to whether Kuhn is a complete relativist, uh, uh, if he would say that there is nothing, no thing such as fact or reality, or that science doesn't, you know, uh, does or doesn't reflect reality, you know, these questions, you know, mm-hmm. it's not so clear what his position really was, mm-hmm. because these are the kind of the complicated questions, you know. Some people read Kuhn as being a complete relativist, you know, while some, you know, still believe that Kuhn has kind of a uh, kind of a old positivist view on things. You know? So I have to imagine so, there must have been a backlash in the scientific community against against Kuhn's views. I think, you know, that's the moment with Kuhn's structure of scientific revolution, that's the moment when history of science kind of split with scientists' view of science. Because scientists' view of science still is something like before, uh, it's, it's still somewhat po- positivistic, you know. Mm-hmm. If you ask more scientists around, you know, they believe. And it's, in, it's also in the accounts they give of their biographies, you know. Uh, you know, scientists still believe that you know um, science, you know, is uh, uh, progressive. You know, in this way that it leads to a kind of a not only that knowledge advances, you mm-hmm. know, as we move into the future, but that humanity improves as well. Right. So most scientists that enroll in in programs of you know science and technology, they say that they want to make a change in the world, the right, yeah. for the better. And the, you know, definitely they believe one hopes, right, mm-hmm. and definitely they believe that change for the better in the world is something that happens through science, right? But, you know, I mean, Kuhn is not exactly against that view, but his view of his presentation of, you know, um, of how science works is is very complicated. And one cannot, no longer after Kuhn, can no longer have this, like, simple view that, you know, we move automatically towards, you know, um, towards progress in the future, you know, or that, you know. So I wanted to ask, 
Is it possible to see a paradigm shift coming before it actually arrives? Or if it's possible to predict one, would it not really be a paradigm shift? We can produce a kind of an account of what's likely to be more innovative than something else, you know, based on, you know, like if you read Kuhn's work, you know, then, you know, we would know that the conditions for a paradigm shift, what the conditions for a paradigm shift are, you know, and usually paradigm shifts are brought about by the individuals who are marginal to the, com- to the, the, the community. Mm-hmm. They manage somehow to convince everybody else that their view is more important than the mainstream view. So it's a matter of convincing, of changing in belief. And so if we were to look at, you know, if you were to think of how what's likely to, you know, to be a paradigm shift in the future, we we shouldn't look at places at mainstream places, you know, or like at places which reflect kind of the mainstream of science, but we should look at the margins. Mm because it's more likely that the paradigm shift will occur from the margins. And we should look at, you know, freaks and rebels and all these people, you know, uh, who are, you know, they are the, you know, the, they are the ones who bring about, the, you know, revolution. So not to completely contradict my earlier question, but do you have any predictions about where the next paradigm shift will come from? No. Well, <laughs> Good answer. It sounds like what Lauren's saying is there is nothing inherently paradoxical in that, right? That it's not once you recognize something could be a potential paradigm shift yeah. that immediately negates the possibility of it being one. It's just, it, you're not going to find it in, in mainstream scientific research. You're not going to find it by reading science, you know. I mean, unless you have an, a subscription to the, a number of science which will be published in the future, right. once the paradigm shift has okay. already okay. happened, you Here's know. Here's so. my question. After the term was coined, has there been predictions using this term to describe you know, describe events in the scientific community that then later was recognized as a paradigm shift? Maybe well, this question is a bit actually circular because... Yeah. Well, I mean, there are all sorts of, like, interesting and, like, freaky individuals, you know, out there who kind of use this thing, <laughs> you know? You know, like, one example is, you know, um, uh, uh, there is this guy, Kurzweil, you know, who, right. like, the singularity, you know. That's a very good example of somebody very definitely predicting a paradigm shift. And yeah. And trying to bring it about, actually. Like, yeah, trying money. to bring it about, yeah. you know. So, yeah. But I, that's the thing, you know, if you're trying to predict, the person who is trying to predict a paradigm shift is more likely to be the one who tries to bring it about, you know. Mm. So, um, yeah. Something that Shashun's question is getting at, though, is has, have there been attempts to sort of normalize the study of paradigm shifts to the extent that we can predict with regularity yeah. when they will occur? Well, you know, I, let me tell you something. I think it like a policy, kind of the, the education policy consequence of, of uh, Kuhn's book is that in a university, you know, and maybe in an institution such as Harvard, we need to have variety. You know, we have to also, we have to like respect kind of what the, the mainstream, the, the, the hierarchy of value of what the mainstream view of science imposes. You know, mm-hmm. we have to have that, the mainstream hierarchy, we have to respect that. But right. we also, at the margins, we have to also encourage, you know, all sorts of like uh, freaky individuals, people who appear very marginal, you know. So an institution that wants to back up, you know, paradigm shift, you know, mm-hmm. has to be interested in, uh, in also in, 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 you know, like in financing and, and, uh, and, and you know, standing behind uh, marginal people. Uh, I can and see it now, the freak endowed chair at Harvard <laughs> University. Yeah, that, that would be something, you know. So, so Florent, let's move to talking a bit about your own work. What yeah. do you study particularly? Uh, I am in the history of science department and uh, I'm interested in global history of science. Everybody, every historian of science that practices history of science these days stands on the shoulder of Kuhn. I want to, I want to do something which um, 
uh, you know, one of Kuhn's, Kuhn's statements is that when a paradigm shift happens, you know, there is a change in belief. And what happens is that it's a sort of a religious conversion, right? But Kuhn studies, studies this phenomenon at the kind of at the level of the change in scientific theories. Mm -hmm. Later, historians of science have looked at experiment and the change in you know criteria for experiment. Mm -hmm. One of the things I'm interested in is that is change, you know, at the level of culture, you okay. know. And from this point of view, one can tell interesting stories about, for example, how an entire knowledge system shifted, you know, from one belief in certain values to another. And what I'm, th is, uh, what I'm talking about here is what happened, for example, in East Asia, you know, mm -hmm. in China and in Japan. You and know. that's specifically the area that you study? Yeah, about. that's particularly the area that I intend to study. Okay. In, in the 19th century, there is an interesting shift, you know, from an, a knowledge system, you know, uh, which is, you know, has its own coherence uh, and criteria for what counts as knowledge, you know, towards, you know, something which was imported, one can say, or something which was received, you know. Uh, and, that's, and that's Western science. That's we, Western what science. What we now call Western science. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. What you know, people usually say you call Western science, and this is a process that has to do with globalization. It has to do with the story of you know the quest for power. Mm. Thoughts about the importance of science in in East Asia has always have always been associated with you know thoughts about how to you know how to advance uh, in terms of you know power and in, in terms of national interest. Um, so th these are important aspects and they're all tied together. Mm -hmm. And it, it's also, you know, a story of the formation of a new elite in these places and so on. If you look at China, for example, you know, one of the in interesting, you know, aspects to, 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 to consider are the change, you know, in the examination system. You know, the examination system is the core of the the old knowledge knowledge system. Mm -hmm. Because well, one... Exactly. Yeah. So because the elites, you know, they they all they were all enrolled in this uh, in this examination system, and if you would if you if you made it, then you know you had a very powerful position. Right. You know, in the nineteenth century, people start at first rejecting uh, Western science, saying that our system is better still, and or even you know there were theories in China, you know, saying that you know Western science is just a form a more developed form of Chinese science. Yeah. But after that, you know. Things uh, kind of uh, this big change occurred, you know, that uh, the examination system is just dropped, you know, and uh, people start in uh, 1906 or so. Okay. Yeah. You know, well, this is one one of the things I'm, you know, to consider. You know, I mean, I'm I'm still in the phase of deciding what my dissertation topic is going to be, you know, but this is kind of the areas, kind of, these are kind of the topics I'm thinking about, and this is kind of the, these are kind of the phenomena of which I'm, I'm reflecting upon. So something along the lines of the transnational structure of scientific revolution. Exactly, yeah. Sounds fascinating. Yeah. So with that, it looks like it's about time for a paradigm shift in our own that'll show here towards the fluff portion of our podcast. You may have noticed that, as they say, tis the season. The season for Christmas carols. Love them or hate them, you certainly can't avoid them. So we're taking a moment to ask, do carols retain any shred of their original tradition, beauty, and sentiment? Or have they been fully converted into simple background music for mall shopping? So, Xiaoxian, you're something of a musician, so I thought I'd throw this question to you first. What do you think about Christmas carols? Well, I was thinking why certain carols, like Jingle Bells, which Florin mentioned earlier, these are, maybe there's something intrinsic about them that they're more easily commercialized. So you hear in the shopping malls Jingle Bells or, or Deck the Halls, but mm -hmm. you don't hear some of the more, what I would call more traditional carols like 
you know, We Three Kings, which happens to be my personal favorite. So it, it seems like carols can, some of them have retained this more traditional function that you, you might go see in a church choir, mm-hmm. while the others are, have become you know, what we associate with background noise. So is this just a religious distinction? Is it that the no, secular it, Christmas carols get commercialized well, and the religious ones are... I, I don't sacred? think so, because I, I think even something like Jingle Bells, when it was written, it was written not as a secular Christmas carol, right? The, the fact that it's a Christmas carol mm-hmm. in nature means it's celebrating a religious holiday. So what is it about Jingle Bells that lends itself uh, specifically to commercialization? Well... I think you know that uh, the perfect Christmas carol, carol has to like straddle the boundary between conveying kind of the cheer of the of the season, you know, and being perfectly annoying. Perfectly annoying. Uh, and uh, I think you know, uh, uh, Jingle Bells has you know has the is actually reflects perfectly you know this this tension you know, uh, and uh, <laughs> I love this scholarly jargon applied to Christmas carols. <laughs> it works very well. Um, uh, you know, and uh, you know, it's interesting. I, I like Jingle Bells. I, I mean, I hate it uh, because you know. And that's exactly the point, right? <laughs> yeah, that's exactly the point. You know, uh, because I mean, a, a, a carol you love is the one you hate most. I think. Uh, so, so you can't bear to, to part with. Yeah. Stuck in your head. Yeah. Oh, how bittersweet. So is this true? Is uh, we, uh, we think three kings. Your so you, it's your favorite carol. Do you also hate it? I, I don't because no. I don't listen to it that much. Because you never listen. Because I don't hear it. Really. What makes it your favorite? Uh, Just the fact that you rarely hear it. Uh, no, that I find it musically beautiful, and it's about the presentation of gifts. You know, the, the three kings at uh, the nativity scene. Right. So they, they come bearing gifts. The baby Jesus. Thematically, it seems to have a lot more going for it than, yes. than just jingle bells, jingle bells, jingle all the way. Nick, you could have sung that. You know? I was. I was scrupulously trying to avoid melody in my presentation. And what there. is your favorite? Well, I was thinking about this, and I think I might have an a sort of an outsider favorite. I think it might be um, the little drummer, the little drummer boy song. It's a little bit silly, and the story it tells is a is a totally made up and and nonsensical one. But there's something um, martial about it that has the beat of the drum behind it, and it seems really appropriate. It's sort of at the end of December. I've noticed that a lot of carols have this sort of martial feeling to them, and the sense seems to be that we are rousing ourselves, right? We are marshalling ourselves for self-improvement, because uh, even if we sort of screwed up this year, next year we are going to do better. And when I was thinking about Christmas carols, this seemed to be one area in which they potentially save themselves, which is that, yeah, we hear them every year and they're incredibly annoying, but we're annoyed by them at the same exact time every single year. So, by tracing our successive annoyances, mm-hmm. we can kind of develop little personal histories founded on these Christmas carols. Well, with that, we come to the end of our podcast. Thank you so much for joining us, Lauren, Stefan, Mora. Thank you. And thank you, as always, Shashim. Thanks, Nick. Thanks also to our off-duty host, Laura Janti. And our producer, James Brandt. And to our guardian protectors in the GSIS Publications Office. Our theme music is by Domenico Vicinanza. We'd love to hear your comments, questions, gripes, or suggestions for future guests. You can reach us at veritalk at gmail.com or find us at facebook.com slash veritalk. You can also find me on Twitter at at Nicholas Nardini. From all of us at Veritalk, thanks for listening. <laughs>